From the University of Colorado Boulder in the Rocky Mountains, this is CU at the Libraries, where information becomes knowledge through storytelling. I'm your host, Melissa Cantrell, the Scholarly Communication Librarian at the University Libraries. Part of my job is raising awareness of open access publishing, which is a way of publishing your research that enables it to be freely accessible to the public. Like many of you, I've been paying close attention to the conversations happening in light of the 2020 U.S. elections. Elections are pivotal to the quality of our country's governance, and it's important that the public can talk about the issues we care about. Among all of the social and economic issues the public will vote on this election cycle, I can't stop thinking about the underlying issue of open government. To have an open government means that all citizens have the right to access the documents and proceedings of the government to allow for effective public oversight and a healthy democracy. But research has shown that over the years, people have become increasingly concerned that they don't have access to the information they need to effectively participate in the democratic process. Beyond academic research, I support the openness and transparency of information in all its forms. As a librarian and a contributing member of society, I wanted to have a better understanding of where this concern is coming from and why advocating for an open government at this moment in our history is unique and important. So I reached out to a few CU Boulder experts to learn more. This is a special audio documentary that's part of Opentober, a month-long celebration of open access at the university libraries and a reminder that we as citizens have the right to an open and responsive system of government for the welfare and well-being of the communities they represent. I hope you'll stay with us. In theory, living in a democracy means that everyone can easily access government-held information and that our elected officials will act transparently and can be held accountable for their actions. The Freedom of Information Act, otherwise known as FOIA, was first published in 1967 and is the law that ensures the public knows what the government is up to. Alan Van Hoy is an instructor of government information and civic literacy librarian with the university libraries. Basically, the idea is that we should have the ability to request information from the government. This applies to things that are secret, like classified, but it also applies to things that just haven't been released. It's mostly a tool used by news agencies to gather information about stories. But, you know, anyone is able to do that request. FOIA is instrumental to maintaining open government. But there are a few caveats that I'll let Kate Tallman, Regional Federal Depository and head of the Government Information Library, explain. I think a lot of people, journalists or other researchers, just assume that they need to make a FOIA request. But in reality, a lot of those records are actually available to them in a different format. We should also note that the Department of Homeland Security has made exemptions to the law over the years regarding information they can withhold. This includes classified information that would pose a national security threat, internal personnel rules of an agency, and some geological and geophysical information. Allen says that FOIA is important to maintaining an open government in the U.S. because the Constitution does not specifically indicate that the public can have access to government-held information. And that's one of the reasons why openness can change depending on who is the president or who is in charge. So in 2020, FOIA continues to be the public safeguard for knowing how elected officials are using taxpayer dollars to create policies, laws, and various initiatives. What I wanted to know was how experts are viewing this return on investment. I think we are more open than the general public perceives. Alan's right. 
There is a lot of information the federal government does make publicly available. As Kate explains, the United States government is the largest publisher in the world, and the vast majority of those publications are available to the public. One thing that's really unique about the United States government is that agencies do have this autonomy to be able to publish initially what kind of information they are going to publish. One of the issues that we have within our government and how we publish information and how we make information available is simply that it's very scattered and complicated and it's located in different places and it takes a lot of strategies, particularly those used by librarians, to actually find that information. For instance, according to the 2020 Federal Register Index as of October 21st, there are 252 federal agencies responsible for regulating industries from the IRS and the U.S. Department of Treasury to the NSA and the U.S. Department of Defense. There's just no single place where you can go and find every single FOIA requested document or where you can find every single declassified document or even where you can find every single publication that's come out of the government. It's very piecemeal. As Alan and Kate point out, it takes resources and time to be able to utilize our open government effectively. Roberto Monaco, a PhD candidate in ethnic studies at CU Boulder, can attest to how difficult it can be to track down information that is in the public domain. He's working on his dissertation, which is about how statistics were used by the police in Los Angeles from the 1950s and the 1960s to racially criminalize people in non-white neighborhoods. Chief William H. Parker was the chief of police of Los Angeles Police Department from 1950 to 1966. He would disproportionately send more police officers in these non-white neighborhoods as opposed to the white parts of the city. And he would be able to collect a lot of crime statistics and data. That was his pretext to send more police officers, citing that like there's more crime in these non-white neighborhoods. Roberto relies on open government data to inform his research. But he's finding that the data isn't all in one place. So far, he's found two years of annual reports at UC Berkeley. Roberto wonders why this information isn't located all in one place. I believe that this type of information, because it's public, the LAPD and other law enforcement departments should publish the data that they have, especially when it comes to arrest records and how they're categorized racially, economically, by precincts and divisions. There's a problem when everything is just so spread out and you have to track this down and locate where they're at. There should be a better method of compiling all this data where one can easily access it and see all the years in a chronological order. A 2019 Pew Research Center report found that about two-thirds of Americans felt that the federal government intentionally withholds important information from the public that it could safely release. But sometimes the government does have a valid and legal reason to withhold information. Take, for example, HIPAA, the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act. HIPAA is designed to protect the privacy of individuals, and most people would agree they wouldn't want their medical information to be widely shared. But what if that individual is also the President of the United States, and his or her health information is a matter of national concern? That was an issue in the news when President Donald Trump was diagnosed with COVID-19 in October. 
clearly right now there is no more vulnerable senior in America than Donald Trump himself. We've been hearing that President Trump is now on his way to uh, the Walter Reed Military Hospital after his diagnosis for coronavirus. The first week of COVID, and in particular days 7 to 10, are the most critical in determining the likely course of this illness. When it comes to things like the medical condition of the president, he is protected under the HIPAA Act. So his private medical information is protected. But at the same time, there's a tradition and there's just a decorum around this where the president's doctor steps up once a year and provides us with an update on his physical condition. We need to know that the president is of a sound mind and of good health to be able to run the country. As Kate explains, in this instance, there were competing laws that made it difficult for the public to know what they had a right to know, reinforcing what we already know about FOIA. Let me ask you this, listener. How did you find out that the president had contracted COVID-19? This election has been really interesting because there's been a lot of information released by different means, and some of it is information that wasn't meant to be released and then was released through back channels or information that has been released isn't complete. Sometimes information that is presented to the public is not always full, or it's been redacted in some way. And I think that creates issues of trust within our society. The Pew Research report I cited earlier found that overall, many Americans are seeing declining levels of trust in the country, whether it's their confidence in the federal government and elected officials or their trust in each other. Not being able to trust our neighbors makes it even more difficult to have conviction in our personal views which can make holding our elected officials accountable for their actions or inactions even more challenging. So accountability is the key, the cornerstone of a healthy democracy. This is Professor Helen Norton, by the way. She is the chair of constitutional law at the University of Colorado Law School. The government is accountable to the people for its performance, including its misconduct and its successes. But we can only hold the government accountable for its performance when we have information about what the government is doing. We can't do democracy without information because the governed can't consent to their leadership without information about their leadership. This is true not only about evaluating our leaders, but also evaluating our leaders' positions on policies that will impact us now and into the future. So how do we know what to hold them accountable for? So there's a phrase that information is power. Often attributed to English philosopher and statesman Francis Bacon from the Age of Enlightenment, which by the way, was the era that really laid out the groundwork for the concept of open democracy. But anyways. One of the reasons why I think that it has merit is that you can't be involved in a government on any level without information. I think about like local communities who are trying to change their city or trying to make change. and. Oftentimes, if you don't have access to the information about a local government, for example, like when the meetings are, what the decorum of the meetings are, then oftentimes your voices are going to be delegitimized. One of the best examples I can think of is oftentimes you'll see videos of a city council meeting and someone will be on the podium um, yelling or, you know, being really upset and the chair will be saying something like, we need to have order, we need to have order. How is a citizen supposed to know what the process is for something if they don't have that kind of information. So if you know that information is power, it allows you to participate in society's preconceived structure. But here's the problem, according to Helen. 
often information is withheld, often as a tool by the powerful to retain powerful. When access to information is asymmetrical, when it's unequal, that means power too is unequal. We have inequalities. For example, the calls for anti-racist policing in the wake of the killing of George Floyd and other African-Americans. We can't figure out the extent of that problem, and we can't figure out whether or not we're making any progress on that problem unless we have information about who is being stopped by the police and why, and at what rates. Who is being searched and at what rates. Who is experiencing use of force and at what rates. We need that information. And that's why much of the anti-racist initiative with respect to community policing has to do with data transparency. People who live in these communities that are over-policed are very aware of the lack of resources available to them as well as their neighbors. So we're beginning to see people empowering themselves by taking to the streets, demanding social justice equity. How can the government, whichever government we're talking about, do a better job of providing access to information? They're not going to do it unless we make them do it. They're not going to do it unless the public demands it. They're not going to do it unless other government officials stand up and demand it as well. It's not usually in the interest of power to share information. So the people, again, in a democracy, have to demand that information and refuse to elect government officials that don't respond to those demands. The university libraries want you to feel empowered to find open information about your governments and to feel empowered to question when you absolutely can't find what you need to know about your elected officials in your society. Like we heard in the beginning, a lot of information is out there. According to Kate and Allen, the closest thing to a central hub for government records would be the National Archives and Records Administration, or NARA. So they have government records, they have some government publications, they have government data, and they have control of any classified information from a defunct agency. While the Government Information Library can't submit FOIA or CORA, the Colorado Open Records Act, requests for you, Kate or Alan can help you fill out a form. If you're looking for just government publications, you would go to the Federal Depository Library Program. When information itself is politicized, it can be difficult to know what information to trust or how to interpret it. But we need open and transparent information in order to make decisions and to elect others to make decisions about healthcare, about the economy, COVID-19, racial injustice, and so many other issues. So along with everything that presses for our attention, open access and open government are on the ballot as well. Moving towards a more open society, I think is really important. And I think it starts with the government. The government sets that precedent, but I think it also needs to be talked about in the domain of open access. We all play a role in demanding more openness from our elected officials through the power of our vote. Hi, I'm Micah Abram, the Director of Development at the University Libraries. Are you interested in supporting all of the great work we've highlighted in See You at the Libraries? Your donation can help us digitize more of the diverse collections from our archives or engage students with innovative resources. Join us in leading the way to an information-empowered world by giving to the Dean's Endowment Fund. Go to colorado.edu slash libraries. Scroll to the end of the page and click Support the Libraries. Thank you.
Claire Woodcock and I wrote this episode. Claire was also our producer. Mark Losey is our editor. I'm the executive director. CU Boulder student Nikhil Thapa composed our theme music. Thank you to Roberto Monaco, Dr. Helen Norton, Alan Van Hoy, and Kate Tallman for providing their experience and expertise. I've been your host, Melissa Cantrell. Thank you so much for tuning in. We can't wait to see you at the libraries. <laughs>